Hi, I'm Michael, and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay, the podcast where each week we do a conversational deep dive analysis into a film. Today we are talking about Whiplash, the 2014 film written and directed by Damien Chazelle, the youngest person to win Best Director, a fact that I am not at all jealous of. I'm joined today by the Beyond the Screenplay team, Trisha Arand. Hello, everyone. Brian Bittner. Hello, hello. Oh, sorry, I was rushing. (laughs) (laughs) And Alex Cayeros. Hi. Dragging. Uh, Okay, so this movie is, I have a really interesting relationship with it. So we're talking about Whiplash, and next week we're going to be talking about Black Swan, because way back when I did a video comparing Black Swan and Whiplash, and it was a really fun video to make when people ask me what of the lessons from the screenplay videos is my favorite. That's usually my answer, because it was a lot of fun to put together it was inspired by like fans of the channel because I'd seen Whiplash once and was sort of like nah, about it. But early on in the channel, people kept demanding like, you got to do Whiplash, you got to do Whiplash. And I was like, all right, let me watch it again, revisit it. And the second time I really appreciated it and realized it shared a lot of similarities with Black Swan, which was also a film I really enjoyed seeing. And so putting that together was the first time I did two movies at once, right? It was the first Versus mm. video. Mm. It felt like making a movie because it was sort of telling the story of both of the movies Mm -hmm. simultaneously. I realized that they're both using music to tell their stories. So there could be really cool editing things and going back and forth and using the scores and having them overlap. So I just had a lot of fun putting it together. And the response was really, really positive. So that was really great. It's the second most viewed video on the channel. Mm. But as far as daily views, it's by far the leader and has been for the last couple of years. So on a long enough timeline, if everything stayed the same, it would eventually become the most viewed video. That's kind of how I, when I think of Whiplash, the video sort of tied to that and watching it and appreciating it because of the audience for Lessons from the Screenplay. It was really fun to watch it again because I hadn't seen it since I made that video. And I appreciated it even more, which just makes me that much more frustrated uh, with (laughs) Mr. Chazelle. But one of the things I, I bumped on, especially the first time, was like not really knowing what it was saying about is it good to be an obsessed mm. performer or not? And I have a bit of a history of at one point being very much uh, celebratory of the obsessed performer and the you should kill yourself for your art. Right. Like mm. that is what makes a good thing. And so I've since changed but I react strongly mm. sometimes to content that, that is about that. But watching it now, I think there's a really interesting nuanced portrayal of it that I would love to to talk about because I think it's a really interesting topic and yeah. the way it's explored in this movie is really powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was interesting rewatching this after recently watching Nightcrawler, the also 2014 film, which is, they're both sort of like dark success stories where you know the characters like do things that we think are questionable or that we don't agree with but at the end they're victorious right like they get the thing that they want and i think that is sort of the commentary this movie is making about what you're talking about michael is it's sort of like if you're cool with not having it with being alone uh, but uh, like <laughs> great then you can just do nothing but practice and go try to do this thing and like screwing each other over and like stopping at nothing and bleeding and killing yourself and all that kind of stuff you can like and it's sort of like it's not even making that moral question it's sort of showing you a story where it's going this doesn't look fun but 
he got what he wanted, you know, and uh, and sort of like Nightcrawler does the obviously much more much darker version of that, but it's not too mm-hmm. far off in terms of just being like, here is a way someone could go about getting a thing they want. It's up to you to decide whether you think that's a good thing or not. Those two films were financed by the same company, mm. so there's not really a interesting. I don't know, not not a super a shock that there's an overlap sort of thematically right. there. Ex Machina is arguably a dark success story too, just mm-hmm. not for everyone. <laughs> not for a human. Not for the humans. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I, I really appreciate stories like this because it's something that we deal with as creators and mm-hmm. as artists. Like it's always been a question, you know, from the time I was young and in film school and moving to LA and trying to somehow break into this industry there is a mentality of you really want this thing, you know, especially in the arts. It's like, I think it's like the sports and in the arts, there's this mentality of, do you want to actually be one of the greats? Do you want to actually matter? Do you want to be meaningfully a part of this thing called the movies? Well then forget about having a normal life. Forget about, you know, a family even maybe, like you got to kill yourself for this because there's 10 other people out there that are working even harder than you are. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not inaccurate. Like that is, if you want to be the best or the greatest, often that does mean a single minded devotion to a craft where, you know, the most decorated athlete ever is probably devoting every ounce of their being to practicing for that competition. And the most insane drummer of all time probably doesn't have much of a life outside of that practice. And so anyway, it's just interesting to think about it as artists, like where do we want to land in that spectrum of having, you know, potentially a a more, a richer, fuller, more balanced life, but maybe that is not compatible with being the greatest or being you know the the pinnacle of of your craft can you do it all maybe not and what do you choose how do you choose to live your life uh, and and whiplash black swan a lot of these films really hit home because they're they're showing both the ecstasy of, of reaching that pinnacle and the like devastation <laughs> of right. reaching that pinnacle yeah uh, so very they they hit really close to home i think for anybody who's pursuing a career in the arts or in athletics or anything, anything that's like highly competitive and really rewards these almost uh, superhero feats, like inhuman feats of perfection mm-hmm. are really rewarded in music and dance and, you know, in sports. I think it's really fascinating because, you know, when you read interviews with Damien Chazelle about this, he's very honest about the fact that, you know, it's not as though this movie is standing in like there's a there's some kind of metaphor happening where it's like a metaphor for the film industry or anything like that it was that he was actually a jazz drummer Mm -hmm. in high school and had a you know abusive teacher who successfully discouraged him (laughs) from playing jazz drums right and that was why he you know switched and became a filmmaker i mean that he was already interested in filmmaking when he was younger anyway so it wasn't like a totally like mate well i guess i failed what to do now but you know Mm -hmm. there was a as you know when he went into undergrad there was a shift from music to film there and so 
it's interesting that, you know, there's this scene in the movie where Fletcher is like, well, I, no one would ever would have been able to discourage, right, Charlie Parker ever. Mm-hmm. And then you made a you made a film about this and, um, you know, about how someone discouraged you very successfully and you decided to do something else to great acclaim and success. So it's very interesting. This movie is super special to me because it is how I... I mean, for a variety of reasons that we're talking about, because the theme is very resonant as well. I'm also a really good friend of Damien's sister, Anna. And so mm-hmm. I got to know her a little bit when I was working on a play with her in 2017. So I had already seen Whiplash and I was already like a very big fan of this movie and of Damien's filmmaking and then became friends with her. And so I've met Damien a few times. Going back and watching it again, it's just so wonderful and lovely to like, people to get to know people that you admire and like people that you already admired. And they're like, it's like, I actually know that person in real life. And that's so cool. <laughs> it's just a very cool experience. I was texting Anna all day today when I was watching it. And I was like, Oh my God, this part, I love this part. It's an astounding accomplishment of a movie, I think. And I, again, there's this, it's, it's tinged with this irony of like, this was something you were genuinely as passionate about as the main character in the film. And I think that that's part of the allure of the movie you know, the story, if you, you know, kind of dive into the story of how it got made, every single like article about, well, you know, Damien Chazelle's whiplash is this auto semi-autobiographical thing. And when we know that stories are based on some degree of reality, we get, we lean forward even more, right? Where it's not just that there's this ring of truth to them. Although I think this movie definitely has a ring of truth mm-hmm. to it. Like you can't make up some of the behaviors that you see on display right. here. They're clearly observed behaviors, but also you're just like, wow, that really that happened. And there's something so extreme about it in this case that it's just, it's, it's endlessly fascinating. Yeah, for sure. I remember coming to the performance of your play and being like, mm. is that the back of Damien Giselle's head? I'm like, oh my God, wait, what's happening here? Yeah, well, and I like you're saying, there's, from the first time I saw this movie, it was clear that whoever had made it really knew this world and right. was very, steeped in it and had thought a lot about how to put it on film the editing and the the quick flashes of people tuning their instruments and the drum snap doing the snappy drum thing and like (laughs) all the stuff that i don't really know what is happening it's clear that the filmmaker does and for people like me that don't know what's happening, it doesn't matter because you get the emotion of it. You get the everyone's getting ready to perform for the first moment, like that tension build up and the you know the sound design, the sound mix, like all of just the technical aspects of oh, the yeah. filmmaking right. are all working together to capture this mood that really feels authentic and helps make the film uh tense and dramatic like yeah. it's so focused and small and simple but extremely tense oh yeah and that's i mean the performances are great we can talk about that but a lot of it is in the filmmaking also and that's was one of the Big first time. things i was very much impressed by right you can tell it's not one of those scripts that has like make sure to brackets jazz jargon and you know <laughs> like someone else will fill this out later it's like very clearly mm-hmm. was made by somebody who wanted to show a, a, a very specific world that they knew really well Mm -hmm. well and i think what so much of the editing and the cinematography does in those 
kind of practice room sequences. I, I was in like, you know, an incredibly non-competitive jazz band in like middle <laughs> school. Yeah, I would play like the keyboard. But there is like a nervous energy and there's there's this electricity in the room when everybody is like coming in, tuning their instruments and in this incredibly high stakes environment, very different from my middle school environment. <laughs> I would hope so. There's a, there's, there is like an electricity that is that is captured through the language of cinema by mm. Chazelle. Like he he found a way to shoot the like sheet music that in a way that was yeah. exciting. You know where it, it kind of darts across the page and you just see it for a flash, but it, it gives that impression of oh shit, we're all turning the pages of the sheet music you know right on the same time so we don't miss something. And and I, I just really appreciate how he used cinematic language to capture a real feeling that I think anybody who's been in any kind of band practice, whether the stakes were low or high, there's still like an energy and a nervousness because it's live. And if you mess up, it's very evident and everybody will hear it. Like anything with live performance is just incredibly stressful and incredibly high stakes. And both this movie and Black Swan really push that tension to its most extreme. Mm -hmm. That's why I can't watch the Olympics, especially figure skating. <laughs> it's too stressful. It is absolutely nothing like the experience of going to a concert. This film is nothing like the experience of going to a concert. Right. And mm -hmm. part of it is because the editing and the, the shot selection, as you were mentioning, Alex, is so tight and close up. It's like being on stage as part of the band, but even more so. Right. Sometimes I'm like, am I inside of this like trombone right now? Right. <laughs> it's the, spit, the spit coming out. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's really visceral how close you are to everything where like there's just like horns darting across the frame and like we've just got the hands on the piano keys and you're so much closer up into everything. It all feels so personal and almost like this, like a jungle you can't get your bearings in when you're yeah. like up on stage with the band where you're like, I can't tell where we're going next. It's not just static shots of those things either, as you're pointing out. It's like, it's during the finale, which we hopefully will talk about at length later, but mm -hmm. it's during the finale where it's the camera's whipping back and forth between those two drums where he's like, as he's mm. like hitting the boop, 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 boop. It's so <laughs> kinetic and yeah. there's so much, there's just so much energy to the way that it's shot that just captures the tension again presumably I don't play an instrument really. So like presumably a lot like playing an instrument where you're feeling the vibrations of the instrument and hearing like, again, my pitch is fine. I've, sorry, I'm a choir singer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it is not at all the same as playing an instrument. Being surrounded by all of the different sounds that make up the musical thing that you're doing, where it does sort of envelop every sense of yours. And then you have the energy of the live performance. I have no idea how I would even sit down to begin capturing it, but this movie is a really stunning example of that. Mm -hmm. And I'll say that also just the quality of the sound is a oh huge part of it too. Mm. Like like the, the, the crispness and the liveness of the music is really special in this movie. It, it feels powerful in a way that oftentimes you hear like, you know, live music in a film and it doesn't, mm -hmm. doesn't doesn't hit you. It doesn't hit you in that way that a live performance does, but it really does in this movie in a way that is really unique. Mm. It's the synergy of the visuals and the sound design yeah. that creates this 
really smooth experience too. Yeah. Like, you know, when when they're getting ready to practice and like we're talking about this quick cuts to like it's a trombone and it's the sheet music. Visually it's changing, but the sound is like guiding you through each one of yep. those and the sound right. of the sheet music like like sliding past and the like of the all of that is part of what creates that experience. And that it's also balanced with just good other filmmaking also <laughs> like yeah. it's not just yeah. there there could be a really immature or a simplistic way of doing it where it's all going to be close ups and in people's faces and you're never going to really know what's going on but there is the balance of you do have a great sense of the geography of every, every space and right. the film knows when to go to the wides and when to linger on this person or like travel slowly across the band to arrive at this and it's that the choreography of all of these filmic tools really creates this experience that you can't fight against. Right. Like, yes. Which is like frustrating, but it's so good. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll, I'll piggyback off that and um, start talking about the, uh, the sort of storytelling itself too, because I think I was thinking about the pacing as you were talking about that, which is that this movie is so watchable. Like I just watched it a year ago. I was like, I could have done the podcast without rewatching it. And I was rewatching it and I was like, God, it's almost over already. Like this movie is just so boom, boom, boom. And I think part of that is not just pacing in terms of, you know, scenes are shortened to the point and, and that kind of thing. But also this movie isn't trying to be a music video or like you were saying, Trisha, a concert. It is giving you, it always wants it leaves you wanting a little bit more of what you got. So you get those moments where the camera zooms around Fletcher and it's like, oh, things are going well. This is fun. I'm enjoying myself. And then not quite my tempo. Like, right? Like every time things seem to be going well, then the movie right. throws a wrench in the works. Yes. And that not only within a scene, but also throughout the course of the entire movie. Like something I never really appreciated before, but I think one of the most brilliant devices in this movie is Connolly, who right after <laughs> yeah. um, he, uh, Neiman gets comfortable and starts to get cocky you know i think it's right after that dinner scene where he's like i everything's good now i'm the best yada yada then here comes Connolly. here comes another person where it's like oh no you're just one of the people auditioning for this part like you didn't get anything you know so then now he has to get better then he breaks up with his girlfriend like not even halfway through the movie and then the crisis like i talked about with uh, i think it was my lesson on black panther like i love when the crisis of a movie is like everything is over like, it's not just like something bad happened. It's like the story's done and yeah. there, but there's 35 minutes left and like, who knows what's going to happen next. Right. And it just really like, so this movie is constantly giving you something that's entertaining and fun and you want to see more and then saying, but no, here's a wrench in the works. And then you go, Ooh, crap. But now I'm really excited to see what happens next. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it is a relatively short page count. Like, it's sure. a fairly short script, and the movie comes in at I think 107, 108 minutes, something, you know, right there that feels very neat and tidy and like tied up in a bow. And again, that that creates that sense of momentum, but it's also efficient storytelling, right? Where mm-hmm. it doesn't at all linger in the first act. The first act is super quick, mm-hmm. where we meet Andrew, he's sitting there drumming, and then like, immediately Fletcher walks in. It's the first scene of the movie. And, you know, the next scene he's, hanging out with his dad and he's like, well, he saw, he saw me play today, right? Like mm-hmm. the whole relationship gets laid out right there. Like, I just really want to impress this one, you know, teacher of mine. Again, I was watching that scene and I think you talked about this a decent amount in the video, Michael, about like sort of the first act of it and how efficiently and elegantly it's done so elegantly that first act of it's all just shown to us 
it's all like there's conflict right up front where he's like immediately you know, Fletcher's immediately testing him and he feels like he failed. Fletcher walks back in. He's like, oh, I forgot my jacket. Mm-hmm. It's so perfect. But then he's having mm-hmm. having popcorn with his dad at the theater and like he's like, you know, I I didn't do very well. But it, with he conveys so much with so little, even to the point of like. He doesn't want the raisinets that his dad hasn't put right. in the popcorn. It's all jammed into these super short scenes. Like, mm-hmm. I'm sure you've read the script, Michael, recent, more recently than I have, potentially. Well, whenever the video came out, that was four, four or five years, yeah. But I would venture to say, because they don't take up more than, you know, two, three minutes at most. They, they mm-hmm. can't be longer than that in the script, I would imagine. And so it just is like gets you out of the gate, like off to this running start. Mm-hmm. When, and I remember reading the script and the script and the scenes being longer than they are even in the movie. Not that they were long, but there were things that were even made more efficient in the right. final cut, which is interesting. Oh, cool. Yeah, the one line that you pointed out, Trish, is he saw me play today. Mm-hmm. That already embeds that line with the exposition of his, he, this is somebody he's already talked to his dad about. You know, you, you could have had like four lines of like, exactly. so there's a teacher at my school, da, 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 or teacher, you know what I mean? Like Devil Wears Prada, we talked about the first 10 pages setting up, this is what the whole movie is going to be. That first scene does that with this movie, right? It's like, there's a guy, you want to impress him. He's a dick. He's going to say things that don't make sense, but you're going to try harder to impress him. He's going to just disappear out of nowhere. (laughs) He's going to come back and rub it in your face that he's a dick. Like, it's just, it's like a really great, here's the villain and here's like the central conflict to the movie uh, from this point. Mm -hmm. It's the movie in microcosm. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Which is great. Yeah. Well, speaking of the dick, should we talk about J.K. Simmons and his performance (laughs) and this this character? Because... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Watching it again, I, I had kind of forgotten how brilliant the character is in the way that his abuse isn't just always this one note, throwing chairs, being like overtly angry or evil. He also has this way where he is like kind of taking you under his wing for a minute. You know, that, mm-hmm. that, that scene in the hallway where he kind of puts his yeah. arm next to him and he's like, yeah, like who are your parents? Your parents play like it, seeming to take an interest in this kind of gentle mentor way only to in the next scene, like use that information against, against him. Yeah. Uh, it's just, it's so dark and so twisted, but in a way that feels very real yep. because I, you know, I've never had any kind of teacher or mentor figure be, you know, to that extreme. But I, I do remember in high school, like the occasional teacher or like drama teacher who had a bit of that mentality of, to to drive your protege towards perfection, you have to make them kind of squeal. You got You got to like push them to the edge and and really kind of rattle them. And that is there is a real archetype of that approach to mentorship that is captured here. Where and the feeling of being the mentee of that person it can be terrifying because it's like a psychological mind game. Like it is. right now I feel accepted and warm and like you're a parental mm. figure to me. And like, no, oh, maybe you're going to like take me into your wing. And that feels really amazing. Like I'm special. And then it can be ripped out the next moment and you can feel like you want to just go home and cry and feel devastated. It's fascinating that that, you know, that is like a real thing out there in the world. Like, I've experienced a mild version of that probably in like kind of the drama department at my high school that it was like an intense drama department. And, you know, we had teachers that were like treating it almost like this was their thing. Mm-hmm. Like the same way Fletcher feels like his reputation, like 
his meaning for his life is dependent on him discovering the next great, you know, musician. There were drama teachers in, in the department of my high school that it felt like they were similarly invested. It was like, I am determined to find a great actor amongst you kids. And I'm going to like single out some of you and I'm going to push you really hard because I, I want to feel like I found the next great actor. Um, so it's, it's a real dynamic that's out there and it's, I haven't seen a movie that has ca- that captured the full range of the dynamic where it's not just the one note warm mentor or dick mentor. It's, it's like the real scary thing is the combo. <laughs> right. I mean, that's what makes it emotional abuse <laughs> is yeah. having both of those. Right. Things. Exactly. And the terrifying thing. And one thing I think about a lot when I watch this movie is how even the, you know, most seasoned musicians in Fletcher's band don't know how to please him. And his punishment seems so arbitrary. Right. The abuse seems so arbitrary, right? So it's really interesting that, um, you know, we talked in the Devil Wars Prada episode about people who, when you have a, a world, a story world with a very specific value system, one of the first things that you have to, have to do is acquaint your audience with the value system of the world. Right. So that we understand the stakes, right? Like you have to convey stakes to people who can't tell the difference between this belt and that one in the case of the Devil Wars Prada, right? Like, and especially in this case where Andrew is in world, right? So in Devil Wars Prada, you have the advantage of somebody who is from outside of the world. So people can explain to her what her problem is in the character of Andy, whose name is very similar to Andrew's in this. (laughs) (laughs) When you have a character like Andrew in this film, He's in world already. And so you have to find some way to convey to us why we need to care about like the quarter notes or the, you know, one person is slightly sharp or whatever. And so this movie does a really great job of conveying that it almost doesn't matter if you actually are flat or not, because that's not what that's not the rule that Fletcher follows. So you are not safe even if you're playing perfectly is the thing. And that opening scene where he first, you know, joins studio band before he takes over and sits in is like the main drummer in that scene, which is also a brilliant, but brilliant part of that scene. But the arbitrary punishment on that one, I think it's like a sax player, right? That's like, you, do you think you're out of tune? Mm -hmm. Do you think you're out of tune? And the guy has no idea what to say, right? It's like, the value system of this world is just whatever Fletcher says it is. Right, it's not right. whether you're in tune or out of tune. It's not whether you're you're you know lagging or whatever it is. It's just if Fletcher decides that you've in some way offended him, then you're toast. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and I think the other thing to um, to point out the value system is if we just if this movie was just Fletcher, you know, teaching Neiman, for instance, then we as the audience would be going like, why is he even putting up with this guy? Right. But mm-hmm. once we see the world, which is the studio band, we see everyone else stand to attention. And like, right. this is Fletcher, like he demands respect. And yeah, he's going to be a dick. But like, that's, that's his process, you know, which is just like Devil Wears Prada. The important thing is not whether or not you agree with how this person treats you. The important thing is you respect what this person does and you want to be here. And that's it. So as soon as you have a main character and the audience seeing that in everybody else, then you re- then it's like, okay, I guess I just need to fit into this too. I also recently rewatched Full Metal Jacket. And I was thinking about that as well, where I was like, I just want the out of tune player or the not out of tune player 
to, to come back, you know, tomorrow and get revenge on Fletcher in a very <laughs> full metal jacket kind of way. But it's that similar kind of world of like, look, this is the world that you have chosen to sign up for. And it doesn't really matter whether you like it or not. Yeah. And the really incredible thing about the way that this, what this gets you as a writer, basically, is your audience does not have to know anything about jazz then to understand the stakes. Mm -hmm. So like to me, right. when Neiman is playing, I think he sounds perfect and fine and good. Like I think the band sounds great all the time. Was someone out of tune? How would I know? I'm a very <laughs> average choir singer. Like it has nothing to do with that. And so it sort of removes the, the I don't know, I was about to say the burden of proof, but like the burden of explanation, it removes that burden from you as the writer director. You no longer have to teach the audience anything. We just have to take Fletcher's word for it because Fletcher's truth is the only truth that matters, right, in the world. And so, like, that's the thing when he's, you know, cycling through the three drummers and is like, none of you can play on time. I'm like, are they? I can't. Maybe <laughs> right. they are. They seem like they're playing very fast to me. Like, <laughs> yeah. right. But it doesn't matter. It's just whatever Fletcher says. Yeah. One was fascinating about those scenes, particularly because I, yeah, I'm like you, Trish, I have no idea if they're lagging or rushing or whatever. It, like you can say, it doesn't matter really because no. Fletcher may not even be actually testing anything real. Like right. he might be just testing their resolve or seeing who's going to break first. So those scenes aren't even about like who's actually drumming the best. Exactly. It's, it's a different kind of psychological battle happening. Right. The mm -hmm. scene you just mentioned, Trisha, like happens right after the Sean Casey situation. You know what I mean? Where it's yeah. like he is on right. tilt. Therefore, it, it's like, yeah, who knows whether they're playing correctly or not. He just wants to take his anger out on somebody. Yeah. 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 Yes. The the culture reinforces this behavior. So you buy that uh, Neiman has to be this way. And I feel like you get like the the ignorance, the potential ignorance of the audience kind of helps because he doesn't know if he's rushing or dragging mm -hmm. some of the time. He doesn't know what this guy wants from him. We don't know. So we're sort of on that same page. With Lost him. with him. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The moment that you just mentioned, Brian, Alex Casey, is that his name? Sean, Sean Casey. Sean Casey. Thank yeah. you. Yeah is another really interesting moment in the characterization of Fletcher because mm. you do see him have what seems to be a very genuine emotional reaction to the death of this person that could have been great. Like, I feel like that's maybe the one moment in the movie, at least the first time around, where I was like, okay, maybe this is a, a human in here that I'm supposed to like, this, this Fletcher guy, or there's maybe something in there that's driving him. I think that's a really interesting, smart thing. It fuels the sort of punishment scene that comes afterward, like you're saying. And then it also sets up the twist reveal of Fletcher lied about how the student died. And that just kind of makes it even that much more twisted and problematic uh, <laughs> when, when, when you learn about that. And so it's, it's a really smart beat to have in there that serves many purposes. Yeah. Well, the movie is surgical at giving us a flash of what might be humanity from Fletcher every time that we're prepared to completely write him off and be like, I don't care what that guy thinks. Forget him. Forget everything right, he says. Right. And then they like, he's talking to a little girl in the hallway. Yeah, and like, scene. I'm like, oh, I know what you're doing to me. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, you're this big. Last time I saw you, you were so small. Are you going to go play in my band? And you're like, girl, don't, don't run. Don't do it. Run. <laughs> run. 
Well, he wouldn't let her in anyway. She'd come back 10 years later and he'd, and he'd be like, oh, I don't care what I told you when your daddy was present. Get out of here. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. But the other thing about that scene is that, again, this is just like amazingly well-observed storytelling in the writing. But the other thing about that scene is that it's so obvious that her dad is a former student, right? Too. Oh, sure. Where like mm. the way, and it's just like we see this flash of an interaction between him and Fletcher but it's clearly like here's a former student who still has a good relationship with Fletcher and Fletcher like has you know is kind of in the life of the daughter and like is really kind to her and there are those moments just those moments where like the Sean Casey one is another good example and then there are a few others where you're just like he's maybe he's in there like maybe he's a real person and you know he's gone about everything the wrong way but he's yeah a human being potentially underneath of all of it. And they just, Mm. this script does it so well. Because if we don't, the thing is, again, it's about stakes. Like Mm -hmm. this movie is about tension and stakes. And so if at any point we, the audience, disengage from caring about what Fletcher thinks, like if we at any point are just like, Andrew, run for your life, which- I am half the time. Yeah. Right. I am most of the time, to be clear. <laughs> sure. But we still have to be invested. You know what I'm saying? And so sprinkling those little moments, those just like tiny little moments throughout is what it does to get us back on board with like, well, maybe Andrew can please him. Maybe mm. he will show a human side. Well, and I think a lot of that comes from J.K. Simmons' performance, too. You know, whether he is demanding pictures of Spider-Man or saying not quite my tempo, <laughs> you're just like, you are awful, but like, I like watching you. And like, there is, because there's like a comedic tone to the way that he just as a performer performs. Mm. And then of course there is a humanity to him because he is a good actor and that's what this part calls for. And then of course, the other end of the spectrum, you have Miles Teller who, uh, not the other end of the spectrum, but just very different performance, but also someone who had to, was a drummer, but had to learn like yeah. all of this stuff and actually keep up, which is the the crazy thing about this and Black Swan is the the leads had to learn this stuff too. In in addition to performing, I also I know I mentioned this in like a very early podcast, but I love that the short film, the original Whiplash short film, stars two John Simmons. It's yeah. Johnny Simmons, <laughs> Young Neil from Scott Pilgrim, and then Jay John is the J in J K Simmons. So I just love that. But yeah, so you just get these um these performances who just like these two leads and obviously you know you've got supergirl and the bad guy from aliens but uh they're they're great too i love mm-hmm. paul riser i'm so excited when he shows up and things yeah. yeah well and jk simmons his physicality in this movie is yeah. such a big part of it too like yes like his like buff arms i mean he takes off his jacket it's very intimidating uh-huh. and the way he holds himself is a big part of just why you immediately know who he is when he walks into a room like it's the body language and the presence yeah well and i, I was reading like you know damon chazelle was saying between takes he's like the sweetest guy ever you know mm-hmm. so like it's another yeah. it's just an impressive thing to realize you know like he is an incredibly sweet normal nice person and he was able to embody that energy that is so specific and so intense you mean you can give that performance without staying in character when the camera's not on you how amazing (laughs) apparently you can be nice to everybody around you while giving this performance acting (laughs) (laughs) well and and since you bring up paul reiser i i think he's brilliantly cast in this yes but obviously the contrast is set up very deliberately between him and 
Fletcher's character. Right. The father figures. Exactly. But there's this extremeness to the way that Fletcher presents himself, which is exactly what we're talking about with his physicality. You know, he's bald. He's always wearing like all black Mm -hmm. all the time and just dressed very sharply. Right. And yeah, incredibly commanding when he walks in like the door. And this is also sound mixing, right? But the door always like bangs open and you can Mm -hmm. hear his shoes like crossing the Mm -hmm. floor. Like Mm -hmm. in contrast to Paul Reiser's character, Andrew's father, who we we see them both the way that Andrew sees them. And that was the other thing I was going to bring up about this movie, which is the POV. Like we're so firmly planted in Andrew's POV. It's almost like... There's, there's not an objective lens through which we are viewing these guys. It's like this towering sort of success of a person in Andrew's mind in Fletcher. Mm-hmm. And then this total failure of like this very mediocre, insignificant life in, in his father. It isn't made too much of, right? There's a version of this movie that's less grounded where they're even bigger and like Andrew's father is even more bumbling and more like sad. And I don't know, I recently rewatched Chicago and thinking about like the way that John C. (sighs) Riley's character (laughs) is in Chicago or no one can remember his name, you know, and it's all played for sort of comedic effect about how sad and invisible he is. There's a version of this movie that's less grounded that does both of those things even more. But here it's so grounded and feels so realistic where this is just how Andrew sees these two people and the movie never dwells on it so much, but it is there and very deliberate and creates this like really strong impression in our minds about it would be, you know, for whatever reason, and this is not at all fair. This is just the state of mind that Andrew is in to him. It's like death to end up like his father, you know, and he would be so happy to end up like Fletcher, which is part of the, the psychological like trap of this whole thing. Yeah. It's something I hadn't thought about until you pointed it out, which is like every time we see Fletcher, like a scene starts with Fletcher entering the room, Mm -hmm. like multiple times we see him enter the room and And people are already always there. Right. And almost every scene that we see with Andrew's father, he's just already there on the couch. Mm -hmm. Right. Like we never see Paul Reiser, like walk into the room and like do anything special he's just there on the couch eating popcorn and it's like those little subtle little things that you're talking about that you don't notice right away but it's just like it's framing this character as someone who's just there in andrew's life versus this character who is sort of a superhero to him mm-hmm. or supervillain. Yeah. yeah or both that's one of the things that has shifted for me each time that i've watched it where i think part of the reason i didn't get into the mood the first time was because i immediately knew how i felt about both of the characters which was you're an idiot kid you have paul riser as a father go hang out with paul riser and get away from this jk simmons idiot like so i had a very hard time empathizing with it and i think the movie ultimately i feel like the movie does kind of navigate a pretty neutral perspective on it where it is it is showing you maybe not not neutral but but showing both sides of 
the coin a little bit where like you're saying you the way Fletcher enters a room does have power does have presence like he is talented like there are things that are admirable about him and there are things that are definitely bad and scary about him there are things that are warm and fuzzy about Paul Reiser's character and things that are you know less impressive and all those things and I think one of the problems I had the first time was like I think I wanted the movie to more clearly paint Fletcher as bad guy more like consistently Mm. and a lot of the cinematography is really just beautiful like the the room that they're in like it's all golden and glowing and it's just that studio band room looks like the most beautiful room i've ever seen it's amazing gold Yeah. yeah yeah So I feel like that was, and you know, then in the third act, you have the conversation with Fletcher where he does get to kind of have this monologue about like the worst words in the English language are, you know, good job, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And that doesn't really get refuted in a clear, big way. And so I think those were all things that kind of bumped for me and rubbed me the wrong way. And then the finale, which I think we should talk about, is really layered. Like there's a lot of things happening In that finale, like story-wise and character-wise for Andrew and his relationship to Fletcher, his relationship to his dad, his relationship to who he's going to be, I feel like changes multiple times during it. And it's that's partially why it's so engaging. But the first time I was like, I feel like I'm supposed to be really happy for him, but I don't know that I'm supposed to be happy for him. And then watching it more times, I'm like, well, okay, I can see how this actually is a tragedy. Basically, every time I watched it, the look on his dad's face read differently to me. Uh-huh. Yeah, that, that's a great moment. Yeah. And so I think that's just something that ultimately I think is actually pretty remarkable about the ending of the film and that very few films manage to do is like make you think about all of these things mm-hmm. and like put it in your brain and make you wrestle with those things while being the most freaking entertaining like finale of any movie ever. Somehow it makes a performance feel like the Death Star trench run. Like it's just so exciting. It's so Also, I like that it starts with the Godfather 2 moment. It's just like, I know it was you, Neiman. You broke my heart. (laughs) Which is an amazing moment. Like like that is such a great, like, I mean, what more do you want from a scene to be the most tense scene ever right drop mm-hmm. that right you know it, the stakes have just been announced he just announced mm-hmm. to the whole band if you screw up on this stage like you're done <laughs> and then he lays that on neiman it's just such an amazing moment mm-hmm. it's also an interesting character moment for Fletcher, or not character moment but character revelation almost for fletcher is that like he's willing to to have his reputation tarnished a little bit yes because like he let this guy in his band right but he is willing to do that hoping that everyone's going to be like we know you're good but this guy is screwing up so like we're going to blame it on him clearly he's got something wrong with him fletcher's taking a big risk letting that happen mm-hmm. well in some ways fletcher has less to lose because he did lose his position at the you know the most prestigious sure. music school in the country so it's kind of like if i'm going down kid you're going down with right. me because i know you're the one who brought me down he's like a more dangerous fletcher in that moment he has like really nothing to lose well and that was the exact thought process I went through the first time that I watched this because, you know, part of Fletcher's MO and it's in the text is that he cares a lot about his reputation where he's like, don't mess up on my stage. This is, you know, my band. If you're like going to drag us down, that's when you have to go. Like you got to get out of here because this is about me, essentially. That's kind of the thing that he conveys throughout. 
And then when he asks Andrew to play with him, you know, they're sitting and talking at that club. It's actually, it's so cleverly done. Like, because it's not at the club that he like mentions, oh, by the way, I'm going to do this like JVC thing. And um, right. Like, uh, you know, and and Andrew's like, oh, I guess that's something like, you know, good for you. Congrats on that. And it's not until as they're leaving, they're like about to walk away. He's like, by the way, I don't know how you're going to take this, but like, maybe you want to come play with us. And it's so like subtly dropped in there. The whole third act of the movie, I don't know about you guys, but the first time I watched this, I was like, how is Fletcher going to screw him over? <laughs> like, it's just like racing through the possibilities in my mind of like, this is a trap. This is a trap. I know it's a trap. I don't know how it's a trap, but it's definitely a trap. But at the end of the day, I, I kept coming back to like, but Fletcher wouldn't torpedo his own performance. He wouldn't mess up his own reputation. He wouldn't do that. There must be something else that his plan is, but there isn't. And <laughs> it's so nightmarish when he says like, do you think I'm stupid? I know it was you. And then he says, upswinging, and you know, the camera's like whipping around, like, you know, he doesn't have the charts. And it is exactly like you, you know, that nightmare of like you go to school, you don't have your pants, and you're like, <laughs> like everyone's gonna laugh and know, and like there's no way we've all been unprepared for a performance or you know, something. And it's like there's no way I'm gonna be able to improv my way through this. And it's just gonna be a slaughterhouse, which it is. And mm-hmm. Wow. I can't tell you how many times I've dreamt that I was about to go on stage as an actor in a play. I haven't been in a play in over 10 years and I didn't know my lines, but I was like, I guess I'll figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. Terrifying. What I loved in your video, Michael, on Black Swan versus Whiplash, you pointed out both these films have these very similar beats where Nina also commits like the worst crime in ballet where she literally falls. Like she she falls out, out of somebody's arms in a really awkward way onto the ground, which is, you know, the worst possible thing that could happen on stage. <laughs> and both of those moments bring the character and the audience to just like, it's over. Like, there's no recovering from this. And kind of like Fletcher, they have nothing left to lose at that, at that point. And that's when they come back out. And in a way that is kind of morally ambiguous, we don't know how we feel about it. They commit all the way to kind of, you know, killing off their old selves to become this idol of perfection in their craft. And that's why I really, I, I was watching Paul Reiser's performance in the, in the end there where he's looking at his son, mm-hmm. you know, disappearing into the music. I think, yeah, there's, there's the initial interpretation, which is like, he's just blown away like everybody else. How is this possible? His son is so amazing at the drums. But watching it again, it's like, oh, he's watching, like he's lost his son. Like his son mm-hmm. has committed mm. to this path that often ends in tragedy. Mm-hmm. Well, he's framed through a window. Right. Yeah. That's the brilliant thing about that shot of Paul Reiser, where it's that rectangular window. He's behind a door. Yeah. Right. Okay. It's the window of a door. And so there's visually this separation where his son is physically cut off from him at this point and it is paul reiser's expression is just like incredible but it is a little bit of one of those tests where it's like depending on who you are or how you read the scene it kind of like affects the way that you read his expression as they cut to it i was really struck by that this time too 
Yeah, it's interesting. I never I never read it as like him actually processing like what this means for Andrew's future at all. That's a very a subtle thing that even after four times I didn't catch. So mm. so thank you. Well, and it, it's interesting because I, I didn't the first time either. And in the video, I even sort of say, you know, I just say their parents look on astounded. But one mm-hmm. of the comments that would happen often was people saying like, actually, I think that's him being horrified that he's mm. lost his son. And so that was sort of what helped me reframe it. And then in the script, it is sort of uh, suggesting that more uh, overtly that, you know, he's watching his son disappear from him. And I think Mm. even like an usher comes and like ushers him away in the script. He Mm. might be somewhere slightly different even. But in the script, it's not ambiguous. In the movie, I do feel like it's, it's just ambiguous enough that it is kind of a sort of test, like you're saying, Trisha, where you can, as audience, project things onto it. Inkblot test. That's the word I was looking for. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, Rorschach test. Yeah. There is some setup for that kind of interpretation of the ending with that dinner scene where yeah. the, you know, the dad character is pointing out like, yeah, that guy that you're idolizing, he ended up overdosing or you know, yeah. suicide. Like, is that a life to aspire to really? And, you know, I think Miles Teller was really good casting for the character of Andrew oh, because yeah. mm-hmm. he is able to embody. It's almost kind of like the Mark Zuckerberg, Jesse Eisenberg thing where it's like you can tell that he's so committed to this idea that he's kind of able to put aside just more like human feelings and human concepts of like maybe like life is about more than this he's so confident in saying yeah but that guy we're talking about him right now we didn't know him personally but we're talking about him and like he's so confident that that is that is the way you know that is that is the goal in life all these stories are kind of about characters that just commit so wholeheartedly to that idea of wanting to be remembered, wanting to be the great, wanting to be perfect, that they do become kind of like a monster or they become not maybe a monster is too strong a word, but they have to cut off part of their humanity to become that person. They have to break up with their girlfriend Mm -hmm. in this very cold kind of mechanical way because, hey, you're going to get in my way for the single-minded goal. I, I can't have anybody in my life at all because they're going to be in my way. Right. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting thinking about Jesse Eisenberg as Mark Zuckerberg because Jesse Eisenberg has always been an actor who's like who's had a little like distance and darkness to his performances, which yeah. is perfect because that's who this character is at the beginning of the movie. Whereas Miles Teller, he is more of like, he's more boyish and like your buddy who you want to like give yeah. a hug to and that kind of thing. But then, so it's like, the transition that he goes through over the course of the movie is then more heartbreaking. It's almost like yeah. when yeah. we see those scenes, like the dinner scene and the scenes where he's like, yeah, I got this. Like I'm, I'm the best. I'm the youngest who's da da da. Then it's like, we start to go, Oh no, like not our buddy. Mm-hmm. Like our buddy is starting to turn, you know, but he can play both those the sort of two sides of that role. So, well, he's the white swan, but also the black swan. <laughs> yeah, and, and he looks really boyish in that first scene, actually. Yeah, like, when he's lit, even in that very opening mm-hmm. shot, he, he kind of has like, like a boyish round face and and it you you feel like he he is like the innocent at the beginning yeah he looks younger than he is you know i think miles teller was 27 or something and i'm mm. like oh, he's wow. not 19 yeah. <laughs> like he, right. which is how old he looks but this movie and black swan as well but especially in whiplash the film takes a lot of care to put us into the mindset of if you really believed that this was all you were on this earth for. Like, if you really believe Mm. that you are the best, 
that you are a prodigy and not just because you have the natural talent, but because you also have the drive. Like if you instinctually know that about yourself and you are willing to do anything and everything for it, then what would you need with girlfriends or other friends or other like creature comforts? You know, I love the scene where it's it's little one, but it's at the beginning of his, you know, in in act two where he starts like, he throws everything out of his room. He's like, anything that's not drumming doesn't belong in my room anymore, right? And like gets like throws away a bunch of stuff and makes space for his drum kit in his room and stuff. A very on the nose, but very clear visual representation of like, this is all there is room for in my life. And we need to know that about Andrew, again, to go on this journey with him in the same way that we need to stay invested in what Fletcher thinks, or at least we need to stay invested in what Andrew cares about what Fletcher thinks, right? Again, the POV of the character is super important. And so if you really get put into the psychology of the character thoroughly, then there is no cost that's too high, right? If this is all you're put on the earth for, and you genuinely believe that, then who cares if you ruin every single one of your relationships and, you know, your health and and whatever else. To create a psychology that's that extreme, but very sympathetic, is a very deft trick of writing and performance. And it is expertly executed here. And I I just want to, like, clarify what I said at the beginning because I don't want to give too much credit to Damien Chazelle's sadistic band teacher from high school. <laughs> like, because I said that that guy success, you know, successfully discouraged Damien. But Damien has said in interviews that he instinctively knew mm-hmm. that drumming wasn't the thing for him. And so, it, you know, I don't want to give so much credit to that guy that's like, you know, he, he told, you know, whatever, like successfully sent us Damien Chazelle as the incredible filmmaker <laughs> that he is. Damien knew that, but if you didn't know that there was something else out there for you, if you fully believed there was nothing else out there right. for you, then there is no cost too high. And that's what's so brilliant about the way that the character of Andrew Miles Teller is played here. Well, and I think what's so remarkable about that ending is that it does just complicate everything because mm-hmm. up until that ending, there is kind of a simple morality tale of, yeah, it, it's not worth pursuing this life because this is abusive and this is wrong. And like, there's more to life than this, and yeah. et cetera, et cetera. And then Miles Teller gives such an incredible performance in that finale where you do see him embody this, like just like human vessel for <laughs> genius. And he, and he, he's right. He, that performance is so raw. Where, like in, in the heat of like the, the peak of that drum solo, like he is just lost in it. And you, yeah. he's doing that. He's doing that thing you see in those amazing performances where his face is just almost like gone limp and yeah and he's just so he's like such a vessel possessed. for yeah. the energy yeah. yeah he's possessed and so you see that and you're like oh crap maybe this is what you're meant to do but once again at what cost and is it okay that we as a society like kind of demand this and want this and celebrate this above all else mm-hmm. right what's helped me be okay with that ending is remembering that this movie isn't for kids like it's it's very (laughs) r-rated as as though that were in doubt for some reason the the first time i watched it it maybe because you know i think a lot of not the first time but watching it again because so many audience members of lessons from the screenplay were like you gotta watch it and i think a lot of 
the audience of Lessons from the Screenplay is younger people and people aspiring to be filmmakers. I was kind of uncomfortable with too many things being put out there in the world that might suggest, Mm. you know, you need to believe this is your purpose. Like we need as many people as possible to sacrifice as much as they can so that we'll filter out and eventually get, you know, the geniuses. Like that's, that is what society wants. Like that's what that mechanization is designed to do is like everyone do your best. Most of you will fail and we'll get to celebrate with the ones that make it while everyone else falls away. And I feel like that's also not a a healthy way to approach creativity and living your life. And so I think that's just want to like say that out loud also. And and again, watching the movie and realizing, oh no, this is a mature story. It's dealing with all these things, asking those questions and making me think about it like it's successful in all these things. So I'm definitely not criticizing the movie. I really appreciate the movie for that. But I feel like that's just a thing that I know young Michael would have needed to hear right. like reiterated. So I just want to say that out loud. Yeah. And once again, thinking about Young LTS fans, young us, I mean, it's no accident that we identify with this movie because Hollywood, up until recently, has celebrated people that act a lot like Fletcher. We hear the recent stories about Scott Rudin that have come out. Like, he was basically doing the exact same kind of really outrageous behavior with his subordinates, you know, and that kind of culture has been celebrated, like not even not necessarily celebrated, but kind of accepted as part of just how it works. You know, this is just how we get great movies. This is how we get great producers who like get the Oscars and get the money for the investors. Like there's kind of a celebration of this personality type. And so young creatives, I think they, they see that and that's and they see how it's kind of like, this is just how it is, kids. It's easy to get into that mindset of like, well, that's how it is. And so I need to adapt myself to that culture, even if it's really not me. If I want to make it in this business, like that's what it is. And, and, and I'm really happy to be alive at a moment where I think there is a generation of just younger people saying, maybe not. No. Maybe we can <laughs> make great movies without abusing each other. Right. <laughs> like, <laughs> Part of the beautiful nuance of the conclusion of Whiplash is that there's specificity in Andrew's relationship with Fletcher that gives it that nuance where I, it is very possible to read this film. And this is how I read it the first time around as Andrew, like triumphing over an abusive mentor. Mm. Like I'm going to make it in spite of you, not because of you. Right. What Fletcher has done goes beyond throwing a symbol at somebody's head. It goes way beyond that. Right. It is not the crucible of your terrible leadership that has made me able to triumph over this. It is me finding different inner resolve that makes me better than you are. Not just that I'm here because you didn't discourage me out of it and like you are the person that created Charlie Parker or whatever, but that I'm here because I want to be here and I'm going to endure, you know, longer than you will. And and like beating Fletcher at his own game almost. Right. Again, I think that there's like the the mentor and like mentee relationship in this movie makes the question a little bit bigger than what are you willing to sacrifice for your art? It goes beyond that because it goes 
to like these sort of structural questions about, you know, who the gatekeepers are right. for success. And I think that that's really interesting and really valuable and, and something else to think about as you like walk out of this movie and, and look back on it. And it's a nice thing about the design of Fletcher is that mm-hmm. like, it's one thing to push your student. It's another to insult his father. Like, what did you achieve with that? Right. Like, and I think that is the difference here. And and that's exactly the the analogy of throwing the symbol at, at Charlie Parker's head is it's not just that he encouraged him. It's that he, you know, almost harmed him. Right. Like, and that's the difference. It's like, you can say, Hey, a teacher should encourage you to, to keep at it or something like that. But we're not talking about that with this movie or with the other people that you guys were, were talking about, Scott Rudin and people like that. We're talking about like actual abuse and that kind of thing. And those are two separate things, right? But people don't know how to separate, the, the wrong people don't know how to separate them, I think is the problem. Once again, there's been a culture of this kind of like, there's like legends, you know, there's- Right, like it's a cool thing to do or something, right. Yeah. These legendary figures, they have questionable means, but you know, as they this get movie- They get results, yeah. As this movie like- makes you question at the end is like do the ends justify the means and mm. as well, that's why i love banding in this film is because it is so complicated and you yeah. do have to grapple with it right. as you walk out of the theater because andrew does succeed in spite of fletcher but then fletcher comes in and together with his approval i know mm-hmm. right like like fletcher is participating in that right right like if fletcher walked away angry while right. Andrew like succeeds, it's a totally different reading. But, but Fletcher right. got what he wanted. Like, right, like, right. He, he's like the happiest we've ever seen him at the end of this movie. Right. Well, and that's why it is this this, this dark success story because we do get the sense that like that you know I, I really wish that it was even more well communicated the the look that Paul Reiser is giving obviously when you read the script it's like okay those are four sentences that it's hard to do in a look Paul Reiser does a great job but we do get the sense at the end of like no Andrew is now the new Fletcher, like he has become a Fletcherite or whatever. Like, and so again, it's like, yeah, he got success, but not in the way where we're like, he triumphed over this horrible lifestyle. It's like, no, he just, he just leaned into it so hard that, that he won. Hmm. And I think ultimately this is kind of an intractable thing about existence, right? Like if you want to be good, you got to sacrifice and put in the work. Where is that line? Where's the line? Is it impossible to know? Possibly. So let's make things that make us think about it, at least. I think the line is when you get hit by a truck. Yeah. You should probably just go to, go to the, the hospital. That that's, car crash that's is so good. That's my personal line. Like, <laughs> whenever I'm bleeding, yeah, right. I decide not to continue with what I was doing before. Right. Stay tuned so. for Black Swan. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't we go around and say what lessons we're going to take from Whiplash? Brian, do you want to start us off? Uh, sure. When we talked about Dark Knight Rises, of all things. Sage, our friend, friend of the podcast and from Just Right, his lesson was about Alfred saying that he's going to leave if Bruce keeps up with that lifestyle. And then he does like and then he's just gone. Right. Mm-hmm. Until he's having a nice fatty breca in Florence. Um, <laughs> but uh, he but like I, I, I was thinking about that watching Whiplash again this time with Nicole, that you really just show the consequence of his choice. Like he doesn't mm-hmm. get, you know, and I, I, as I talked about on previous podcasts, I love when people get punished in movies. Like I'm if, like, look, show me a bad character, but then show me them being punished. And even though he is quote unquote successful in this movie, I still feel like his, his sort of the life that we as the audience want for him has been ripped away from him, but he made that choice himself. You know, he told her 
I, I can't be with you. So then later when he's like, hey, maybe now it's fine. No, sorry, buddy. Like you made that choice and this is the consequence. She has a boyfriend. I love we don't even see her in that shot. Yeah. Like it's just that so distant. Right. And like mm-hmm. even the audio is sort of like quieter and like poorer quality. So it's like we are leaning in to hear what she's saying. And uh, and yeah, so I just I love that. I love that that he made a choice knowing the potential consequences. And then that's what happened. And he doesn't get to just be fine then. Like the thing that the consequence happened and it happened forever. It's permanent. There is no going back. Yeah. Yeah. Every time I watch it, I expect her to come back Mm -hmm. because that's just what you kind of expect to happen. But it is, yeah, like you're saying, just that one phone call and the the finality of that decision is pretty powerful. I do miss her because like she was a Mm -hmm. fun person to have on the movie. Yes, But that's, I guess, the point. Yeah. It's a really smart B plot for this film, which is actually kind of what my lesson is, which is that there are lots of characters around Andrew. Like the character web is really brilliantly built out in this, where there's lots of characters around Andrew who show him different paths that he can take. I really love that character. What's her name? Sorry, Nicole. 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 Yeah, Nicole, who you know, is like, I don't have a major. I don't, I don't know. Like you could just feel Andrew going like, oh God, a person who doesn't know what they want to do with their life. Uh. Like maybe we have nothing in common. But we're just like, hang on, sit in this date. It's going to be fine. Like some people don't have majors. It's all right. You do have something in common, right? It's after that, that they, she finds out like, you know, oh, I'm, I'm homesick. And he's like, you know, I go to I go to the movies with my dad still. There's just like a lot of these little minor characters that are sprinkled around that are really great. Like Connolly, of course, and like that are just really great different, you know, you could go this path. Andrew, you don't have to like follow Fletcher all the way down to the darkest place. Mm-hmm. You can go other ways and care about other things. And it's interesting to me that in the crisis, which is that final, you know, they're at the distant concert. Where, <laughs> right. The why further is that concert, away concert somewhere the else. The further away show <laughs> <laughs> that you have to go to on a bus by yourself. Right, right. <laughs> We didn't rent a passenger van? I don't know. I just have <laughs> right. questions about that concert. But I think it's interesting that it's it's not the way that Andrew interacts with Fletcher in that scene that like signals his transformation, although there's part of it where they're kind of like yelling at each other. But it's how Andrew is starting to treat other people. Mm-hmm. Right. When we see him starting to spew that abuse yep. toward his bandmates, who we know have been just as abused by Fletcher as he was. And he like turns on everybody around him. And that's who he's yelling at on the phone. He's not yelling at Fletcher on the Mm. phone when he gets hit by a truck. He's yelling at one of his fellow drummers. Yeah. And I think that, again, the character web, like sometimes I when I think back on this movie, all I remember are the scenes between him and Fletcher because they're so powerful. Mm hmm. But there's all of these other things that are telling us where Andrew is at any given moment and signaling to us where he is on his arc and um, showing us his transformation. And then a lot of that, of course, is also done when he's by himself. You know, right. that incredible montage with the ice, ice the bucket, picture of the, ice water. The, the horizontal ship. How dare you make it horizontal? So cool. <laughs> you do it visually, right? You do the sig- you do the transformation visually. But you also signal it with the character web. And it's it's really smart writing here. Yeah, it's funny. The dinner scene I had forgotten about. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I was like, oh, what is this scene? You know, and, and I was thinking, like, is this a scene that like has to be in the movie? Not 
that I mined it, but it was just, I was running that question through my, my head. And then you realize that is where you start to see the transition of who he is becoming, but also you're seeing how other people in his, in his immediate circle feel about his thing. Like nobody is impressed by him, by right. this impressive thing that he's doing. They don't and get it. His response is not to try to explain his response is to just insult other people, which like you said, is he's starting to right. just like Andy in Devil Wars Prada. Like you see that transition start to happen where they are starting to become their evil mentor, basically. Also like Mean Girls. That's exactly sure. what I was just going to say. Yeah. yeah. Andrew becomes the queen bee. He Randy. becomes the thing he sought to destroy. Everything's basically Mean Girls. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Yep, that's just a mega challenge, just that. <laughs> Every movie versus Mean Girls, compare and contrast. <laughs> Alex, what's your lesson? Well, it's interesting, Trisha, you were pointing out, you know, the the ice scene where he kind of has a totally bloodied hand, like, going into the ice. It's and so cool. That really extreme montage, which also reminds me of Black Swan, you know, the just, like, the body horror of yeah. the pursuit of perfection. And it was fun to listen to my dad talk about this film. My dad loves this film, but he has been a drummer since high school. And mm. so he knows Jesus, what it feels like to be a drummer and has watched all these greats, you know, on YouTube and classic videos of these amazing drummers. And he was pointing out that actually when you're drumming incredibly fast, your body has to actually be relaxed. Like your hands actually have to be relaxed in this incredibly loose way where you can kind of maneuver the sticks in, in like this almost like hmm. impossibly fast way. He, he found it kind of funny in the movie how it was implying this incredible like tension in the hands and like incredible friction that was like wearing his hands down and making them bleed. And But my lesson is kind of like, you know what? Like I needed that though. Like I needed like that was right. good storytelling to visualize and make me feel the kind of the pain of this mm -hmm. extreme kind of extreme sports version of being a musician. And so I think it, it was a good lesson to me of accuracy is not always the goal. I mean, I totally believe Miles Teller as a drummer 100% in this movie. And like I said earlier, his performance at the end feels to me, like it looks to me like one of those once in a lifetime insane performances where somebody just loses themselves in the music. But I also think it's it's smart to do these kind of cinematic embellishments where maybe this wouldn't actually physically happen to you as a drummer. Maybe blood isn't actually spattering on the cymbals <laughs> right. as you're playing. Like, I don't think that's really a thing. But it serves a narrative function in this movie. And for 99% of the viewers who, who don't have enough experience playing drums to know that, that would never happen, mm -hmm. it works. So yeah, so I think the lesson for me was if you do it right and commit to everything else in the movie, you can get away with a little bit of exaggeration. And somebody like my dad still loves the movie. You know, it, if the movie wasn't good, that might have been like a deal breaker where it's like, ah, this is so unrealistic. That would never happen while you're playing the drums, even if you're playing really fast. But the movie is so honest and captures so much that is real about being a musician that those cinematic flourishes just add to it and it's, and it's okay. Yeah, just want to shout out to Band-Aids. I feel like this is a great movie <laughs> for some great Band-Aid shots because right. we don't get those in movies very often. Normally <laughs> heroes in movies just let themselves bleed. Mm. But I really appreciate the like two Band-Aids over the main part of the the hand that's bleeding there. And like he's trying to stop it. I mean, it's little things like that that keep it grounded, right? Where it's like right. if he was just like letting himself bleed all over his drum kit. Although he does that scene he where he punches it out yeah. <laughs> is also great. But yeah, there's a little bit of grounding to it where it's like, I'm going to prepare by bringing this pitcher of ice water and a lot of band-aids. Right. Black Swan's very similar where it's like, right. I have to treat this 
my war wounds from this extreme art that I'm doing. Yeah, Whiplash is is neither a grounded movie nor a ridiculous out there right, movie. Like exactly. it, mm. like it keeps those grounded. I mean, even something as simple as like their feet touching under the table, like in the uh, the first pizza mm-hmm. date. Like there are so many big ways you could do that moment, but instead they do it in like the simplest moment possible. That does keep it this grounded feeling. But at the same time, there is this sense of like this is almost a superhero movie where like people literally get hit by trucks and then run <laughs> to like go do their performance and that kind of thing where. You do have to kind of take a little bit of a step back and go, okay, you are you are showing me a movie that is in a, in a sort of elevated world space. You're not trying to say like everything here is like absolutely slice of life, real kind of thing. Right. But that's that. Well, I don't want that movie, that version of this movie. Fletcher is so big. Right. But yeah, right. I think you need to yeah. keep it grounded in yeah. so many, like basically every other way. Because if you had everybody being as big as Fletcher or even anything else being anywhere close to as extreme as the way that that character, J.K. Simmons, plays that character, I feel like you would just be yeah totally unhinged from reality and you wouldn't at all feel the stakes. Like, it wouldn't feel grounded. Yeah, and I think it's important for audiences to remember, don't look to movies for accuracy. Mm-hmm. Like Once much, again. Much yeah. to the chagrin of, like, I have a, a friend that's a marine biologist, like, octopus expert, and she loves to just rant about how science is always wrong in movies, or my mom to, like, complain about the medical things. But, like, movies have to tell a story, and sometimes that's uh, not about accuracy. Although... I don't know. When I play rock band drums, I have to be pretty tense to go fast. So me and your dad should talk. Have you splattered blood all over your? You know what? I might have. (laughs) I have 100%ed some songs on expert. So and you got to sacrifice for that. My dad would say maybe you're doing it wrong because you should be actually maybe looser in your hands trying to. But I 100%ed the song. So. All I want is your friend's YouTube channel explaining to me why all the octopus scenes in movies specifically are wrong. <laughs> she would be 100% down. It would be okay. amazing. Yeah. All yeah. right. Let me know where I can uh, check that out. Okay. Yeah, to sure. reiterate, fictional movies are fiction. Are fiction. Please do not take them to be real. I Am Legend <laughs> is, a fake, is a fake movie. Yes, you are, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. So my lesson is just I love this, the simplicity of this movie and the boundaries of the world are very clear and very clearly established. You know, like we were talking about earlier, the beginning of the movie is a microcosm of the movie. Young, motivated drummer wants to impress dude and be the best thing ever. Dude is antagonist and will be an obstacle. And the movie is just kind of that back and forth with some complications. The the complications are very minor. It's mostly just about raising the stakes and establishing very clearly what the stakes are. And it's just that like, I feel like that's part of why it sucks you in is you just you get it so quickly. And there's no, you know, even the way they introduce the competitions is very just straightforward. Here's a title card. It's a competition. You don't need to worry about the mechanics of, you know, are they good first place helps the school do this or like there's none of that. It's just this is a place where now everything we've been doing matters that much more. And so there's that much more pressure on our protagonist. And so I just love that it's just very simple and straightforward, but manages to just every step ratchet up that tension. And it's just so effective and, yeah. and great. You could almost have this entire movie just have the main four characters and have everything else be written in like exposition or something like that, right? Because it's just, that's all you need. It's so just laser focused on especially these two characters, but then also these these two supporting characters too. And I feel like this is just kind of like a personal aside, but it feels relevant for this movie. 
Alex, you were talking about drama departments and teachers. My drama teacher from high school recently passed away. Shout out mm. to Kathy McCarty Schwab. And she was exactly the opposite of a Fletcher, right. where she took a very quiet, awkward, shy, afraid to do anything, young Michael, and through like heart and humor and compassion and encouragement, like brought me out of my shell. So Aww. there are ways to do this and make people great. I don't want to, that is implying that I'm great, <laughs> but to help people achieve things through like love and compassion. Definitely. And that's important to remember. Well, that lesson is actually tied to my, what am I watching? Okay, go for it. I was feeling the need to watch some films about uplifting teachers. <laughs> so I decided to revisit Sister Act and Sister Act 2 nice. on Disney+. Plus Back in the habit. Wow, they are good. <laughs> Sister Act so 2 good. is like a master. Oh, my God. Wow. <laughs> joyful. Yeah. Jo- I was in a concert choir that sang Joyful Joyful as we toured across Europe and did the dance. So we've come full circle. <laughs> wow. Okay. You win. Um, <laughs> Well, I, for some reason, I thought that I had seen Sister Act, the original, and I had not. What? I, I, mm. I think in my brain, Sister Act 2 was the only Sister Act movie, but it's not. There's a, an original Sister yeah. Act, and it's really great. Oh, you and- kids. You only know Sister <laughs> Act 2. I know both of them. I love the universe where Whoopi Goldberg is dating Harvey Keitel. Like, I just, what universe <laughs> is that? <laughs> <laughs> I like it's the best one and then Maggie Smith Dave yeah, Maggie Smith yes. is just there Mother being Superior. herself always and extremely disapproving of everything guys these movies are so good like what a joy they are two absolute bangers please go check out Sister Act and Sister Act 2 they're on your Disney Plus they are great accompaniment see listen I've started to think of my what am I watchings as like a you may also like on a streaming service if you mm. like Whiplash, you may also like <laughs> Sister Act <laughs> Sister and, and Sister, Sister Act 2, Back in the Habit. <laughs> Uplifting music teachers are here for you there, named Sister Mary Clarence. And <laughs> she, she's going to teach you some some gospel and some soul. Like, it's just so good. Mm-hmm. And oh. Lauren Hill's going to show up eventually. It's going right? to be Right? Like, it's not even fair. God, yes. and the so finale good. of Sister Act. Oh, yeah. That's great. Yep. It's great. Awesome. Very cool. All right. Alex, what have you been watching? So I went and saw Old, the new M. Night Shyamalan picture. And it was really fascinating because I have not kept up with lighter day M. Night Shyamalan uh, filmography. It's really interesting the kind of incredibly specific thing he's doing now, which feels like these just Twilight Zone B-movies that are just proudly Mm B-movies and seem to know they're B-movies and aren't trying to be anything else. So it's there's this kind of interesting high concept behind them. Like old has this very specific premise. The beach makes you old. And and it totally commits to it. Like, and like has a whole system of rules and really, but then like the rules are explained with incredibly on the nose dialogue and kind of stilted acting. Like these are good actors who like know how to like be good actors, but it seems like they're, they're intentionally giving this kind of B-movie performance, then there's also these like strangely moving moments and it kind of culminates in some interesting thematic ideas. So it's, I, I don't know what to make of it, but <laughs> uh, but it was more interesting than I thought. And I found the commitment all around to be admirable, even though it was all 
like a hundred percent B movie. So anyway, that was my experience watching old in theaters. Wow. Hmm. Fascinating. Yeah. I mean, yeah, at least like commit to the, to the thing you do without trying to do the other stuff. <laughs> yeah. If you're not going to commit, why do it? <laughs> right. And, and, and that's the thing is like, it was like, it was done also kind of with love, you know, like it was, it was like a B movie done a hundred percent. So it's, yeah, it's, it's not, it wasn't a movie where you go in and it's like, oh, everybody just kind of like half-assed this and it's kind of blah. It was something else. So yeah, M. I. Shyamalan, fascinating director. Curious okay. to see what he continues to do. Indeed. Brian, what have you been watching? Uh, well, I just want to talk about Sister Act now, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. So I went to a screening of Flag Day, the new Sean Penn movie, which is directed by him and uh, co-stars him. Uh, with a Q&A with Sean Penn afterwards, which was pretty cool. It's written by the Butterworths, who are writing the new Indiana oh, Jones yeah. movie. So there's mm. there's a little connection. But it's the story of uh, of and by Jennifer Vogel about her dad, who was a money counterfeiter and all-around sort of ne'er-do-well person. So it's based on her book. The interesting thing about the movie is that it's told entirely through her POV, basically. So like we don't even see the stuff her dad is actually doing. We just see her... At, like her relationship with her father as it changes and we we sort of get the sense something's going on in the background but we don't actually see a lot of it which is a really interesting way to make a movie because we're just seeing seeing it from her perspective and then they use a lot of the text from the book so it's there's very like poetic voiceover kind of thing uh she's played by dylan penn sean sean and robin wright's daughter who is fantastic there's a little weirdness where she was 28 filming this and there's a good half hour of the movie where she's playing like a 17 year old, I think. Hmm. And then it's her been happening a lot lately. Yeah. And then her brother who was like, is 27 is playing like, her younger brother, 15 years old. Like it, no, it, it doesn't work. And, and overall it's not a fantastic movie. I don't think it's deserving of the like 40% on Rotten Tomatoes it has right now. Ouch. But I mean, overall, I enjoyed it. I don't, you know, I, I would say it's worth a watch. You're not going to be sad that you watched it, but it's not going to blow your mind as like some fantastic movie. But it's very poetic. Like it was, it was really just, I enjoyed the sort of mood that it put me in as it took me through the events of the story. And uh, Eddie Vedder, Glenn Hansard, and Cat Power all wrote original songs for the this huh. movie. So like those are throughout too. So it really has this like poetic, almost like not quite Terrence Malick, but like almost that feeling of sometimes you're just in this like almost meandering music video for a little bit. And then we come back to the actual story itself. So I, I think it's worth uh, worth checking out, but don't, don't expect to see it on all the... Uh, all the lists at the end of the year, put it that way. Interesting. Hmm. Cool. What about you, Michael? So I watched I Care A Lot, uh, mm. which, Alex, oh. I think you've already talked about this as a, mm-hmm. as a what you're watching, but it felt like a, a worthwhile one to talk about since I just watched it. And in this kind of vein of Whiplash, Nightcrawler, like movies, Whiplash, not as much. We touched on it a little bit, but especially Nightcrawler, this kind of protagonist, bad guy protagonist kind of thing. And it was really interesting how I care a lot deals with that because I felt like, you know, the the premise is sort of this woman that's basically a con artist and is conning sweet old people out of their money and inheritance and locking them away in essentially effectively prison. Uh, she's the protagonist 
of the story <laughs> and the beginning really goes hard on making her very unlikable. And so it was interesting seeing a movie take a different approach than the Nightcrawler approach, which is kind of like easing you into like, how bad is he going to be? It front loads all the bad and then introduces an even worse person that's like her antagonist. Oh, interesting. Mm. It kind of gave me whiplash a little bit going between the like, I really don't like this person, but I guess I don't like that person more. So I guess I'm rooting for this person. Ultimately, I enjoyed myself and I thought it was another entry in this kind of movie that is a little bit subverting hero's journey stories by making the characters not heroes and i ultimately i find that an interesting experience so and it's fun you know to watch the cast do things you know roswin pike and peter dinklage and mm-hmm. vice and chris like everyone in it is it's really stylish and yeah it's just fun to look at it is fun i think it's worth watching is how i ultimately felt about it but it's a really interesting movie to look at so anyway i care a lot awesome me too <laughs> Awesome. Well, this has been our conversation about Whiplash. I think we should all go watch Soul as a palate cleanser. Also, just to mm. like remember and Sister Act and Sister oh, I was Act. Gonna say. We're gonna Sister Act and Soul, and um, we'll have a whole a feel good, a feel good playlist. Feel good music movies. Yeah, there you go. Thank you as always to the patrons for making this show possible. Thank you to our producer Vince Major and our editor Eric Schneider. I'm Michael Tucker. I've been joined today by Trisha Rand, Brian Bitter, and Alex Cairos. As always, our Twitter handles are in the show notes. Send us a tweet, say hi, and we will see you in the next episode. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye.